I've said many times that the narrative many of us in Australia here in the media is not the true experience of Australia and Australians. Australians, I believe, are very welcoming and open people. And if you walk through our neighbourhoods, you will see wonderful interactions and friendships and acts of kindness and generosity. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Over the past three generations, Australia has managed a remarkable feat, welcoming millions of new migrants into our community while maintaining strong public support for our immigration program. Among them are the parents of my guest today, Violet Rumeliotis, who migrated from Greece after World War II. Today, she runs Settlement Services International, which specialises in welcoming new migrants, particularly refugees, into the community. Australia will only become more diverse in the future, so our success as a happy and productive community depends on how we manage diversity. Few people are better placed than Violet to do that, which is why she was recognised as the Telstra Businesswoman of the Year. Violet, thanks so much for appearing on the Good Life podcast today. Thank you very much, Andrew. My pleasure. So tell me, how old were your parents when they came to Australia? They were both in their mid-twenties. They were quite young, but very happy um, in their adventure. But as, as you know, many who came in the 50s were here, uh, came here because they were seeking a better life. And your father had uh, studied dentistry when he was in Greece, but uh, but wasn't able to to pursue that when he got to Australia. So, uh, ended up uh, starting a corner store instead. I understand. That's right. He did with mum, and they ran a number of uh, successful businesses over their working lives. Uh, how did they uh, settle in? Was there was it all smooth sailing for them? I would like to say yes, but not really. They they did have the advantage of the fact that there were a number of uh, family members here from my mother's side and uh, people from the same uh, town that they were from, that mum was from. So they did have people who had settled and were able to take them in and support them for a while, uh, help them um, financially until they were able to, you know, find their feet. So... Uh, at that time, we didn't have settlement services. So community, and particularly the own communities, uh, supported each other in that way. And you've spoken about uh, a, an Anglo-Celtic family called the Salisbury's uh, who, uh, who were very welcoming to you in Bankstown. T tell us what it was that the Salisbury's did. All right. Well, I'll just say, so my parents' lives started in Bankstown. Uh, Mum's brothers uh, had bought a milk bar called the Three Brothers, and Mum worked there, and that's um, uh, where uh, they had their engagement party uh, and married. Um, the, the reception was uh, was there, you know, um, so quite... A, so the milk bar was really the, the focal point there. It certainly was, and that was in Bankstown, uh, and um, then they bought their first uh, home in Bankstown, and it was their family home um, for the, you know, for for Dad's life, uh, where he passed away when he was 64, about 30 years ago. In fact, uh, today is uh, the, the the anniversary of his passing. And Mum, um, thank you. And Mum is a, a, a sprightly 88, in good health. And uh, we only just uh, two months ago sold that family home in Bankstown. Um, which was uh, something, um, uh, you know, her whole life she lived there. She knew all the neighbours and uh, it, we have wonderful uh, memories there. So next door to Mum's home in Northern Avenue were the Salisbury's and they were this absolutely delightful family, uh, two, uh, the parents and two daughters, Kylie and Kim and their brother Jim, 
and they were welcoming and loving um, people who made us feel that we belonged and all our different cultural, uh, you know, idiosyncrasies that might have seemed very strange to them, they were very curious and they were in wonder of them and they just made me feel so lovely and so um, uh, loved. So it sounds as though it was not only that they were welcoming, but also that they showed a, a real curiosity about what made you different. Yes, they showed a curiosity. They had a curiosity in a very positive way, um, but they also uh, were very non-judgmental and and yeah, a, a sense of welcoming and caring. And they called you uh, Violetta. I understand your Greek name. Yes, the Greek version. They said, no, we will call you Violetta. You know, it's such a beautiful name. And and the same, we'd go next door with, with different uh, foods or sweets and they would um, be in awe of that and ask for the recipes and uh, love Greek music. And they were very progressive and lovely people. And uh, the, the Salisbury's are now, uh, Tom Salisbury must, is 95 years old. And uh, his wife is probably about seven years younger, Sylvia, and we're still in contact. And at least once a year, we get together with my mum and my sisters, and uh, it's a lovely reunion with them. And that does seem to be the story of Australia's multicultural success, uh, that ability of uh, people in the, in the suburbs just happily to get on with neighbours and welcome them into the community. Uh, your story repeated millions of times uh, across, across the country uh, since the end of World War II. Oh, I agree, Andrew. And I've said many times that the narrative many of us in Australia here in the media is not the true experience of Australia and Australians. Australians, I believe, are very welcoming and open people. And if you walk through our neighbourhoods, whether it's north, south, east or west, you will see wonderful interactions and friendships and acts of kindness and generosity. It fills my heart. Yes, yes. But it's not, it wasn't perfect for your parents, was it? Uh, you've, you've spoken before about sometimes having challenges getting the police to come out to the corner store to, to deal with shoplifters, for example. Yes, we had uh, many situations uh, as a young woman, as a young girl, uh, seeing mum and dad working hard. One of the businesses was on a, a highway and open till the very early hours. And there was a lot of young people who'd come in and there'd be trouble. We'd call the police and the police would not come. Uh, uh, and there were many situations where it was quite overt racism uh, because my parents were Greek, they wouldn't respond. And so I spent many Monday mornings going down to the chamber magistrate with Dad to take out civil charges because he just felt uh, that uh, there was no justice with the police. So I did mm. grow up with a very unhealthy, um, uh, you know, dissatisfaction with police, but I have workshopped it and, uh, and uh, now have a very good relationship um, uh, with uh, the police force and its capacity to... Uh, to engage uh, respectfully. Of course, it's not perfect, but um, but at those those days, it was very difficult. When was it where you thought you might start to to want to work yourself in helping migrants settle in Australia? Well, growing up in in western in the western suburbs, I went to public schools, and um, I saw my relatives very active in the Greek in the Greek community. Uh, and my parents uh, wanting to really have an impact and to the point of uh, mortgaging the family home to build the first uh, Greek Orthodox church in, in Bankstown, San Efimia. Uh, so growing up in that environment was very powerful. Wait, your parents took out a home mortgage to contribute to the building of a church. That's an amazing thing to do. It, it was. Uh, it was an amazing thing as a young girl to, to see them building a business, building a family, and building community. Uh, and yes. with all the, the difficulties, uh, and you can understand, you know, the language challenges and financial, of course, they still felt that it was their obligation and responsibility to uh, build a hub, a nexus yeah. where community would come together. And that was the way that they felt that they could contribute. And, um, and today it's a great legacy. It's a, a thriving parish in Bankstown. Mm. 
Wow. I'm sorry, I interrupted you. You were talking about uh, how, how you got into settlement services. Well, I think, well, growing up in that environment, just seeing, you know, their commitment to community and, uh, and always the message was that we're, it's very important that we, that we give back, uh, that we live in, uh, in society with other people and we should be generous uh, with our time and, uh, and assist in any way. And um, so I learned all about social justice in action. And I saw disadvantage and I saw people who had dreams not realised because they couldn't speak English. And I mm. felt that is such an injustice. People, intelligent people who had an opportunity for an education or for a vocational career and to be mentored, they would be doing amazing things and yet they were languishing in jobs where there was no future uh, or no excitement or passion. So I, I felt that... Uh, that every person should have the right to meet their potential, whatever that potential is, whatever their dream and desires are. And I think so. It was a no-brainer that I would move into this area of work. But you uh, you studied uh, sociology and history at the University of New South Wales. Not not exactly the uh, sorts of subjects one might study uh, if you were going into into business. How what made you choose those subjects, and and what's it like to to run a business as a humanities major? What did what did those uh, what what did that study give you? I, I think for me a general education around. You know, when you place yourself in the terms of uh, the world and the universe and where we've come from, understanding history and learning from it is very exciting to me. And, and my dad uh, was a great reader. He loved reading and a historian. Uh, of course, he felt that Greece had contributed, you know, uh, significantly to uh, civilization, and he was very proud of that. So we grew up feeling really proud of... Um, history and culture and customs and uh, and a sense of pride in philosophy and in uh, mathematics and in inquiry. And so uh, going to university, studying those subjects for me were, were very interesting because I also had a great passion and interest in people and uh, communities and how they come together and how they, um, how they support each other and how they... Um, the tribal elements of it. So, you know, mm. for me, there was many, many opportunities at university to explore all of that and to read and open my mind. Violet, can you tell us the path to starting Settlement Services International? No, well, there's a story there, Andrew. Settlement Services International was um, established in 2000, so uh, long after I finished university. I, um, after university, I worked in a number of organisations and I came to Settlement Service International through uh, its member organisations because I was a CEO of one of them and um, I was on the board and chair for a while and then I moved away and worked in the criminal justice area at the time when um, uh, SSI uh, uh, was, uh, was formulated as that name, established as that name, and it was at the time when um, the Howard government was uh, privatising employment services and we, and we saw that the next cab off the rank will definitely be human services. And we felt that we needed an organisation that had a, a, a broad focus uh, geographically uh, mm -hmm. that we could uh, utilise to tender. And uh, it was a, a wise decision. Uh, we were successful in tendering for... The humanitarian settlement program at that time was called IHSS, and uh, we maintained, we had, we kept that contract for five years. When we had to retender in 20, uh, 2005, we were unsuccessful. Uh, Navitas uh, was successful, the ASX sister company, and we were five years in abeyance, um, being optimistic community workers. We thought we will wait for five years and try again. And so we did uh, retender and we were successful. And that's when um, my part of the, um, my history, I guess, or my story with uh, SSI started as their CEO. So that was around 2012. You had pretty big staff growth through that, through that period, I understand. What are the challenges of, uh, of dealing with an organisation that's uh, uh, growing so rapidly? 
Oh, they're wonderful challenges to have. I have many more grey hairs. <laughs> it was uh, <laughs> at times frightening uh, in in terms of the growth. We because we had being unsuccessful and, you know, for five years in abeyance, what, if nothing else, we learned from our mistakes and we thought we can't just have one one contract. We really need to expand and diversify our funding base. And uh, who would think that it would be so successful? So when I started in 2012, yeah, we had about a $9 million turnover and 60 staff. And today we're close to 1,000 staff and about $120 million turnover. So the biggest challenges were really were about being able to ensure that, you know, the basic things, of course, to meet our contractual obligations, to ensure that we have the right staff in place and the systems, to ensure that our staff are safe. And, of course, that we're, that we're meeting our clients' needs, that even though we had good contracts, they were contracts that were very specific. And what we wanted was to always ensure that we were also listening and meeting the needs of our people, you know, not seeing them as clients for a particular program. And so this is, I, I think, what really drove us. And we looked at innovative models. How are we going to be able to do this? How can we add value to what we're doing further to what we're contracted to do? Who else can we bring in? How can we strengthen our sector? How can we have some thought leadership? How can we um, you know, try innovative ways of, of approaching this? How can we broaden our impact? All those questions, uh, you know, were, were in, running in my mind. I had the, the great fortune of being able to build my own team, so bring in people uh, and build strong, um, engaged and bright and, you know, intelligent, uh, uh, well-performing teams, people coming in and working together. And the main ingredient was passion, um, you know, a sense of social justice and, and having a common goal. Did you have particular mentors that you drew on through that incredibly rapid growth phase? I mean, going from 60 employees to 1,000 is, uh, is, is uh, transformational for the organisation, I imagine. Oh, very much so. And, and also uh, dealing with... The, your stakeholders and how people are seeing this growth because initially there was a lot of um, joy and happiness that a not-for-profit was succeeding and growing and then as we got a bit bigger there was then you know the smaller organizations because of competitive tendering and the nature of our uh, of our funding now which has done so much damage Andrew it's just extraordinary the damage and the toxicity of competitive uh, tendering and, and the way government contracts services. So we had to work really hard to keep a connection with community, to say we're, we're still listening and we're, we're part of community and we want to work locally and fund local organisations. All of those really important principles were, were critical in my mind. And, of course, to, for my sanity, absolutely, I had... Um, People, um, well, firstly and first, first and foremost, my poor hard, you know, in, uh, my poor husband who had to sort of listen to me at the end of the day, and he's a good listener, thankfully. Um, <laughs> not always trying to tell me what to do. Sometimes he does, but he's a pretty good listener. And and uh, a couple of colleagues, really good colleagues. Um, one one person in particular, Pino Migliorino, who. Um, a great, a great mentor for me, and a great colleague who supported us with the organisation. In many ways, is a sort of an informal patron, uh, but he was a, a great sounding board for me, and someone who I respected uh, very much, and uh, his his point of view and ideas, and he he supported me very much. How did you avoid burnout through that uh, through that period? I mean, the, you could have presumably been working twenty four seven. What did you do in order to to maintain the sense of perspective you need to to get the sort of long term vision? I feel that I have a really good approach to this. Um, I have a great capacity to um, a lot of energy and a great capacity to put energy and time into projects, particularly when I feel that they're moving forward, they're meeting, they're making a social impact, uh, that others um, are working collaboratively with me, it energises me so much, Andrew. You're telling me you don't need time out there, Violet. 
Oh, I do. Believe me, I do. Um, and and so I think it was able to go home and have an environment at home that is really quite, um, you know, very serene. Um, my kids mm. are now in their twenties. Uh, then they were they were you know just in you know late teens, uh, but they they're getting on with their life. They were they well adjusted kids and a, a really supportive husband and partner and lovely family. My sister, my mum. Uh, friends. So I, I would, when I go home, I would, you know, uh, know how to switch off. I've got two dogs that I adore and I love to walk and, and that makes me feel great. Um, I love going to the cinema and my husband loves that with friends. So <coughs> certainly doing things that bring me to that blue zone, you know, to get rid of the adrenaline and to mm -hmm. just bring in the serotonin and just relax a bit. Uh, so I, I was able to manage that really well. You've spoken before about trying to disrupt yourself as a way of dealing with business growth. Tell us more about that concept. You know, I, in many ways, I had made a comment that I'm not, even with the Telstra businesswoman win, that I'm not your tradi traditional businesswoman or Telstra businesswoman uh, award recipient. And someone challenged me and said, Violet, that's imposter syndrome. Why wouldn't you be? And I, I thought about it. I thought, that's probably right. But I think um, it's probably uh, the lens I've had, Andrew, growing up around not always being in the centre or, uh, or, you know, in the majority, that there was always a difference. But I think mm -hmm. my upbringing um, and my parents' sense of optimism about being, having a pride in yourself, in, in your heritage, and, uh, and having a sense of, um, you know, a sense of confidence in yourself and your instincts um, was really well developed at home. And so when I was in, you know, came into uh, the workforce, I was able to sort of, I think, apply that um, in, in, you know, in a way that was uh, very helpful. But I also um, learned that there's different ways of doing things and, um, and you have to disrupt to do it. And I'm a bit, you know, a bit of a, I have a high risk for appetite. My board, I think, gets quite frightened at times. Um, but <laughs> I think you, you have to do it. You have to give things a go. And if, if you have your plan, so I, I, I do work a lot with intuition and instinct, but I have learned to also look at the evidence and to surround people around me who will say, hang on, have you thought this through? How's it going to look? How, how are we going to fund it? you know, what's the time frame? So to actually bring me back down to earth about the practicalities of it. And I also am someone who loves to learn, uh, to read uh, different theories, uh, different perspectives, um, and, and to try and apply those in the workplace and to talk with my colleagues about it. Um, and some of the models that we've introduced, like our um, New South Wales Settlement Partnership, there's 23 organisations, Andrew, uh, rural, uh, sort of regional, multicultural, uh, mainstream, coming together and providing settlement services to those who have arrived 18 months, to, between 18 months and five years. Mm -hmm. And this is the second time it's been uh, funded. It's it's a great success. And it, it's allowed, uh, like, Gaimia Community Centre, a very small neighbourhood centre in Sutherland Shire to continue operating because it's part of this consortium uh, and, and they feel that they're contributing in their community and work is done at the local level where, where they've got excellent threads and networks and, uh, and, and, and they're really making a, a social impact. So these different models, there's no model like this in the world. You know, I've travelled um, in relation to the UNHCR work that we're doing in Geneva uh, and into Canada, I've done a study tour and spoke to many colleagues uh, from different um, continents. And there's nothing like uh, what we've done with this uh, New South Wales partnership. And I think even SSI as a social business, reinvesting back into um, gaps that we know the market won't fill and government won't fill, but the community and our, our people have said we need something, we need a service here. And we've, um, you know, we've worked hard to sort of try and... Uh, look at interesting models to do it. 
Violet, many Australians uh, know about the refugee debate from a high level, but I would suspect relatively few know about the settlement experience for refugees. I wonder if you might talk us through what that's like for a refugee who's accepted to come to, to Australia, um, starting with uh, when someone goes to meet them at the airport. Uh, what does that look like? Uh, what does the staff member know? Uh, how does it feel for the refugee? Okay. Well, it is such an honour to do this work and many of SSI's case managers are themselves people of lived experience and uh, there's one of our, my colleagues, a Palestinian refugee, Adam, who says that when he arrived at the airport, when he came out with his family, I think he was you know, a teenager, he said there was a sign with their name and uh, a person wearing an SSI T-shirt and they approached and he spoke to them in Arabic and welcomed them and he said he had, this person had the light, uh, a beautiful smile and a warm and welcoming voice. And he said at that time he thought, one day I want to do this job. I want to welcome people to Australia like this person and this organisation has for me. And today mm. he leads that team. He leads the team. So what happens, Andrew, is the refugee arrives. We have um, the, the information and details, uh, uh, you know, any health, significant health issues, uh, the family size, uh, ages, all of that. Um, and they're collected from the airport and taken to their short-term accommodation where they're then orientation. Here's your mobile phone. Here's um, the kitchen. This is how this works. So all those sort of basic things. Here's contact numbers if you need anything. Here's a basket with um, food stuffs uh, that will keep you going and it's culturally appropriate. We actually have um, a refugee entrepreneur who started up the business of preparing these uh, packages for our clients. And, um, and we, of course, prefer to um, support the refugee entrepreneur and his business. Yes. And then while they're at, for three days, um, the first three days of their arrival, we support them in registrations with Medicare, with Centrelink, all those key services to go and open up a bank account, uh, to enrol the children in school. Um, so all those really basics. And then to talk to them about health assessments, to do a case plan. And every individual uh, up to a baby gets um, their own uh, plan. So it's not just a family unit, but all the individual needs. Because Today, Andrew, you could have a family arriving with someone who uh, is 80 years old, uh, the parents and children, and the children's ages would range. So you really need to have a bespoke approach to the plan to support that family. Once that plan is prepared, uh, they then made referrals to health services um, uh, and, and then uh, linking into uh, the community. So orientation, walks that volunteers do through shopping centre where they might say, here's your local shopping centre, here's where you can buy your herbs and spices, here's the local mosque or temple, any, um, anything that they might, here's cultural organisations that you could uh, link into. So they're sort of orientated in that sense. And then um, uh, enrolled in English and that process of uh, employment. Some are very keen to find work immediately. So, you know, all those really basic things. But at the heart of all of that is the, you know, the story prior to them coming. Some have considerable hardship in, in camps, uh, in urban environments, under difficult uh, situations. And so all of those things need to be taken into consideration around their, their health and well-being and sense of self and, uh, and working them along that settlement journey uh, at their pace. So that's the key things that we do in those first 18 months. And there's certain interventions we can make, you know, for particular needs and um, supports. There must be a real mix of fear and excitement when uh, people first, first arrive in those first few hours in Australia. What is it that people need most as they're settling in? They need, well, of course, our, our Maslow's, you know, uh, um, hierarchy, but they need, of course, the, the roof over the head and, and a sense of uh, safety. Um, but the, the key thing that they need, I feel, is a great advocate for them in, in the name of the, the case manager takes on the role of a trusted, I wouldn't say a friend, but someone that they know 
is there for them, who understands mm. them, their language, their culture. And that trusted professional who has a code of conduct, who's trained, understands how to support them in self-determination, in pushing them a bit. Come on, you can go out and do that. I'll come on the bus with you once, but after that you can do it yourself. And uh, also providing them advice. Look, there is a service here that I feel you'll get great um, advantage uh, if you go uh, and, and maybe I'll assist you in improving your English so that you can, you know, find the job that you want. So that case manager is their advocate, their friend, uh, you know, the person they confide in, and that, that's critical in then helping them trust when they go out further afield and then they link into community, the school community and, and um, cultural environments, and then they can slowly build their own friendships. And there's this great anecdote about Ginger George, who was this 16, he's, he was 16, he's 18 now, year old, young Syrian and uh, really dynamic personality and uh his case manager took him to um, Ashram School to speak to the girls. And, uh, you know, one and he, and he says to them, so what do you think that um, refugees need? And the girl's saying, oh, a house, a, a job, a money. And he goes, yes, yes, all of that. But what about young refugees like me? And they, they're going, I don't know. And I, don't, I don't know. And he goes, friends. We uh, need friends. Yes. And it was so poignant. It was so moving, Andrew. Because that, you know, just a young man who said, I just want to fit in, I want to have friends, I want to know how to hang out, how to look uh, and be part of this society and this community. It was it was so beautiful. And then the girls were going, yeah, of course, you know, they were all doing selfies with him and posting onto Instagram and it was beautiful. So if, you, if you're talking to somebody who's just had a, a new migrant family move into their street or move into their apartment building. Uh, what tips do you have for somebody wanting to, to make those new arrivals feel welcome? Oh, that's a lovely question. What my advice is, is to be curious, to introduce yourself, um, you know, to give to people like space. like the Salisbury's. Yeah, like the Salisbury's. To say, hello, we're here. A, a big smile, that's all people need. Immediately you put them at ease and they know there's a friendly person next door. And, you know, to, to perhaps try and understand where they're from, their culture, and, uh, you know, inform yourself a little bit about it and so you can have something in common, um, offering to, you know, come next door and have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. Yeah, just really basic human things, Andrew, you know, just uh, neighbourly, sharing, um, uh, you know, a meal perhaps, come across for a barbecue. Uh, we have a community kitchen and um, we started that community kitchen because when we supporting asylum seekers, many of them were the one, the, the young men and women out of the detention centres, many of them were very lonely, uh, didn't have family here, and we felt that we really needed to do something for their mental health and they could, so they could get out and make some friendships and interact because many just sat, they didn't have money, they just sat in, in their room on their own. There was a lot of mental health issues. So we started this community kitchen where local businesses donated foodstuffs and, and they would come and cook and uh, and then sh share a hot meal together. And that grew and grew. And now, and I would like to actually invite you to come to one, I'd it runs that. fortnightly and we can have 200 people, 250 people come. And it's the ref is refugees and asylum seekers, but there's also community. We have a, a barber who comes and gives free haircuts, uh, people who come from Sutherland Shire and come and volunteer in serving the food. Uh, there's dance, there's a community garden. So it is about just engaging on very simple things. At the end of the day, we have a lot more in common than we have differences. And from the perspective of new refugees, what, what is it that tends to surprise them most about Australia? What's most unexpected? Uh, they, the weather, the weather really gets them, of the humidity and the heat. Um, so they, they remark on that. Uh, um, they, they love Australian people. They say they're very friendly. They find Australians very friendly uh, and open, so that they, they comment on that. Uh, they love um, they love the um, the 
they were saying they talk about the streets, how wide they are, and probably obviously in the suburbs where they live because they've not obviously not been to Glebe or Newtown. But you know the streets and and the the the, the greenery, you know the gardens. Um, so they're the things that they they talk about that really surprise them. The, the community that we were we're settling into Armadale, Andrew, the Yazidi community. Um, they are uh, very interesting and, and, of course, a very traumatised community. And when yeah. they were first in Armadale, a community member from, from Sydney went to visit just to see how they're going. He had been here, he's been here two or three years. And he said, how, how, he, he told me the story. And he goes to them, how are you? How, how are things? Are you happy? Are there any problems? And they go, oh, we are very happy. We have electricity every day. <laughs> yes, things you just take for granted, I suppose. That's right. Can you tell us a few of your favourite refugee stories? There's one of my colleagues, um, his name is Dor. He came, he's um, Sudanese, South Sudanese. When he was 13 years old, he was in um, a refugee camp, uh, Kakuma, and he, he said that he was under a tree and he had malaria and uh, he was gravely ill. He, had just, uh, he was very unwell and uh, sitting there very abysmally and thought, I probably will never leave this place. And his cousin ran up to him and said, Dor, your family's name is on the list. And um, he said he got up and went and looked and he saw that um, his family name indeed was on the list. And he uh, and, and they arrived in Australia. Um, he got a scholarship to um, a private school um, and he said he was very well treated and received at that school. It's actually Tony Abbott, Tony Abbott's um, old school. And then um, he went to university and he, he's done now a master's in international uh, studies and development. And he's worked in the community sector. Um, now, he, must, he's a, he would be in his early 30s now. Um, he's now leading um, this um, partnership that I talked to you about, the New South Wales Settlement Partnership. He's mm. in that role. And he uh, is also a great advocate for young people, young, young refugees. And uh, he's dedicated all of his uh, teenage and 20s in working with young people through youth, um, uh, through an organisation that we set up uh, that we felt would be um, look at interesting ways where we would be more actively listening to what they need rather than us saying this is what you need as a young person. And uh, his work has been extraordinary in being able to engage young people and to coach and mentor. Many of the people that Dor has worked with, Andrew, are now um, youth ambassadors. Uh, they've travelled to the UNHCR, uh, presented to UNHCR, one of them, Arash Babu, he's now the president of um, the, the Asia-Pacific Refugee Rights Network, which is um, based in Thailand and does a lot of regional work. So there's uh, Rowan, a, a young woman who um, SSI sponsored to uh, go to the, U, uh, to the UN and she spoke there. So there's some extraordinary young people and Dor has been able to engage with them uh, and support them and uh, and bring out that potential and and open uh, their eyes to opportunities and uh, you know and uh, they've really stepped up they're ambitious and they're bright and they're extraordinary and they and they, and door is this uh, amazing uh, man who has contributed to others and he's you know also created a great uh, career for himself he sounds an extraordinary young young man. I imagine too there's uh, uh, many refugees who look to their skills in traditional handicrafts to uh, to build a business when they arrive in Australia. Yes, what I found was, you know, remind me very much of the, the migrants arriving in the 1950s and 60s when we, you know, would do these plans as I spoke to you about. Um, one question, what we noticed was a many, when we said, what did you do before? They'd say, oh, I ran a business. And I thought, well, you know, of course, 
A lot of our refugees come from countries where there is no uh, <clears throat> welfare state. They have yeah. to be enterprising. And so um, what we did was we then start, we developed a tool and the case managers would ask them, did you run, you know, have you ever run a business? And if they said yes, we would ask, would you like to try and start up a business here? And those who said yes, which the great majority did, were then um, uh, sent to our Ignite program. We set up a program uh, of enterprise facilitators who supported them to start up their own business. And it was very much about the refugee entrepreneur driving it, certainly not being handheld. They were supported in terms of being able to um, uh, get through the red tape, of course, of uh, that you require in, in a country like Australia with a lot of regulations. But a lot of the, they had to go out and check the market and do a lot of work themselves. Mm. And now we have... We've supported 170 businesses to be started up and are trading uh, in New South Wales. And it's such a great um, model that um, we've licensed it and the Canadian government um, bought a license. And um, earlier in this year, we trained an organisation, the largest organisation in Vancouver, settlement organisation, ISS of BC. And um, they, they're running the program now. And they have, I think within three months, they have something like uh, 20 businesses up and running. So it is. it tells you a lot. We had that program evaluated and the professor from UTS, Joe Collins, uh, wrote in his um, evaluation that by all accounts, this program should have failed because refugees, they don't know the language typically, they don't know the market, they have no networks and contacts and they have no capital but somehow they make it work. And that is about their, their drive um, and their aspirations and, and tapping into their strengths because they come with a lot of experience and strengths. Do you have a favourite of the refugee businesses that have gone through that program? Oh, there's so many wonderful businesses. There's a magician. He is hilarious. You know, we've had him at a couple <laughs> of our events. The funniest thing was when... We launched uh, Ignite in Canberra, Parliament House, and Craig Laundie was the minister at the time. And the magician had, as you do, a very attractive uh, assistant um, in a leotard. And, um, and the magician, um, uh, the Craig Laundie was obviously a good sport, and he stood up because the magician said, would you like to be part of this trick? Probably should have said no, but he said yes. And he kind of tied them together, you know, and it was quite funny. I could see um, the minister's advice <laughs> very uncomfortable. Uh, magician, we've had... Not the ideal sort of politician, Fredo. <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> yeah, amazing businesses, uh, carp you know, sort of retail, but also construction, um, private investigators, uh, a, a, a Muslim woman running um, a driving school, everything and anything. A lot of caterers and amazing caterers. Mm, mm. Uh, Violet, just to, to close out, I want to ask you a couple of uh, questions I ask all of my podcast interviewees. Uh, what advice would you give to your teenage self? I think, well, very much to trust your instinct and to follow your passions. And I think it's very important to speak up when you need to and don't be afraid to walk away from something when it doesn't align with your values. So I think when we're younger, we get too worried about what people think. Mm. And to be proud of where you came from, it's very important. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's part of you and to be proud of it and to use it as an asset. And I think for many leaders, you know, the part of their leadership journey, I think that they're most proud of usually comes perhaps in the middle towards the end. But really for me, Andrew, it is very much I'm proud my beginnings and you know growing up in Sydney's rich multicultural western suburbs as the daughter of Greek migrants and um, I'm forever grateful for the the opportunities that came from that. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? I used to believe that not-for-profits and people from the left and the progressive people were the only one really only ones really values driven and aiming for social justice and uh, and, and social impact and um, I joked that uh, when I was a young graduate that it was punishable by death in the sector if you ever said anything good about a bureaucrat or about a corporate 
And um, and luckily today, I think I've changed very much, changed my tune, because SSI's partnerships um, with companies like Alliance and Combank have have really shown that the corporate sector can really generate benefits that extend beyond their customer base and into the community. And although I know, like, for example, the 2019 uh, Edelman Trust Barometer, you know, it has revealed to us that trust has changed profoundly in Australia in the past year and people have shifted their trust, you know, to relationships within their control. And I think that if you you look at that, and, and in particular with their employers, you know, if they look to their employers, and I think these, these big corporates um, have many people in in their workforce who want something better. They want their the company to be involved in community and in uh, and, and and make social impact and to make a difference. And I think that really drives um, you know senior leadership of these uh, big companies. So we've had really good opportunities um, with big companies, uh, and it's really changed my thinking. You know, because many corporate organisations increasingly do have a mandate you know, to adopt mm, businesses mm. that increase social value and benefit the broader community. Violet, when are you most happy? Oh, when I'm with my family, my husband, my children, you know, our family and friends. Uh, when I'm meeting people who, whose courage and resilience inspires me, really, Andrew, I went once to this network. It was a Persian women's uh, net, professional women's network, and my colleagues were saying, Violet, you're really busy. Perhaps you shouldn't go. And I said, no, I really I want, I, I'd like to go, and I went along. And I arrived and there were 90 women there, so well-groomed. And uh, I presented and I spoke to them, you know, about my story and about my career. They asked questions. And when I finished, there, there was a queue of about 30 women who wanted to speak to me individually. And I stayed. So I think I spoke for about half an hour and I stayed for another an hour and a half. And every woman that came up, Andrew, they were they were engineers, they were PhD students, they were architects, very well educated, and their stories were, you know, heart-wrenching in that, I'm, you know, I, I work in this job and I, I'm not given opportunities. I, I had I went on maternity leave and I was demoted. Um, you know, I'm in an environment where I'm harassed. They were really quite um, upsetting stories but what I said to them was, no, you need to understand that there's lots of opportunity um, uh, for networks where you can get mentors and coaches, uh, where you can get your uh, understand your rights. You can, you know, this network is very powerful. You can support each other, um, and you know, find your voice and activate your rights, and you know, and and feel proud of what you know your education and what you've achieved. But that, for me, you know, energises me to see young women, many of them young women, um, trying their best, being knocked back, but still resilient. So that gives me, really inspires me. Do you formally mentor uh, any, uh, any up-and-comers? Yes, I do. I do. And I love it. How many, how many people do you mentor? How often do you see them? What do the mechanics of mentoring look like for you? So I, I mentor um, four women. Um, <clears throat> they uh, from different environments, and uh, uh, they uh, I meet with them um, on a monthly basis, face to face. I think that's really important. And uh, and we negotiate uh, what would they like to get out of the of the mentoring. Um, uh, and also I speak to them about what I would like to get out of it as well. And um, it becomes a really organic and a really um, uh, interesting um, conversation uh, and dialogue, sometimes a dialogue more than conversation. And I, I also offer articles to read, you know, if there's some particular issues that are coming up for them. Uh, mm. I provide opportunities for networking. I say, oh, perhaps you should speak to this person or that because that's certainly what helped me, opening doors, you know, providing opportunities to meet other people uh, in areas where you're interested and you're able to uh, build um, your expertise uh, in, or an expert uh, network, all of that. It's a very rewarding thing to do. Sounds impressive that you've got uh, four that you're meeting, meeting with monthly uh, on, top of, on top of your, uh, your other duties. 
Um, Violet, what's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? Well, having a work-life balance uh, means that I have to not do work in the morning, Andrew, so I swap the early morning inbox clearing and I do uh, yoga uh, once a week and I do personal training twice a week uh, and I walk my dogs. Uh, so, you know, that that I do it in the morning so then if I get caught up later, then um, I know that at least I've done something, you know, that's, uh, you know, prioritised my health and fitness. Um, and I also, uh, I like to, I'm a member of a book club, the same book club for 15 years, eight of us. Uh, you know, we've had births, deaths, marriages, <laughs> in that divorces in that time. And mm. uh, we get together and we read books. And I love it because I read books that I might not normally have read. And we discuss it and we have a glass of wine and a laugh, um, which is lovely. I love going to the movies as well, the cinema, and uh, and I love catching up with friends. And I think really uh, what's kept me sane is really strong relationships. And you're also a big one on uh, lifelong learning. You know, you've got qualifications not only from University of New South Wales, but also from UTS, the Institute of Company Directors. Uh, the, how important has, uh, has that uh, training and, and lifelong learning been for you in your career? Very important, because it's a, a, a great um, opportunity to be able to uh, test what you know and be challenged uh, uh, with new thinking and new ideas. And really, you need to be agile and flexible in, in your thinking. Uh, you know, when I think about when I started my career today, it's chalk and cheese. It's just no, I'm, I'm a far better um, leader and, and manager today than I was then, of course, even far better today than I was five years ago. And hopefully mm. I'll be a better one in three years, you know, because and the people around me and the ideas that you hear and it, it, it is such a fruitful environment to be open to it and uh, I do love to learn and uh, and apply some of that learning. And finally, Violet, which person or which experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Well, I, I would say my parents. Their, their mm -hmm. journey yeah, to, you know, to Australia... They had aspirations and dreams for life that they couldn't be realised in their home country. Uh, they worked very hard and they always had an optimism and, you know, a great sense of service to community and they instilled that very much in myself and my sisters. And, um, you know, I think that those beginnings have had an extraordinary influence on my life and the direction that it took, really. Well, Violet uh, Rumelotis, thank you so much for uh, taking your time to share the wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. We really appreciate it. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. If you've listened this far, I'm guessing you're a fan of the show. So please, take a moment to fill out our two-minute survey. You can find a link to it in the show notes for episode 100, the one with Jonathan Haidt. And if you enjoyed today's conversation, I reckon you'll love past interviews with Susan Carland, Sasanke M. Siang and Clyde Rathbone. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.